Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning, Martin and Keith and the rest who are with us. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's Word together. Glad that you are with us as we continue to study our uh, book of Isaiah. It's, uh, it's getting into some fun stuff. So, Martin, I got your uh, got your message, and uh, I yes, apart from the millennial aspect, I think I uh, agree with where you're going with that. Sorry for the rest of you, you just gotta listen in there for a minute. All right, um, in Isaiah, we've we have been yesterday, especially we looked at the uh, the people's response to this vision of God destroying. Jerusalem, just as he said he would. We talked about the the plans formed long ago. So let me let me pull it back, grab the context again as we continue to work through today, chapter twenty five. So we're in the midst of these uh, oracles about uh, or concerning the surrounding nations of Jerusalem. Isaiah is seeing God's punishment of these surrounding nations. He he's he's has this vision of of this years, decades, century even maybe before uh, the fact. You know, got Babylon and Philistia and Egypt and so on. So Isaiah sees God's judgment on those nations and that includes Jerusalem and Judea. Uh, and the northern kingdom for that matter. We saw that as well. And we looked at this interesting section at the end of 24. Uh, It will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. And remember, we looked at Jude and 2 Peter, how Peter seems to be alluding to this same idea that God, there's a place called Tartarus, which is the place of the dead, but not all of the dead. It's a place of torment. And it it appears that angels are sent there and even uh, unbelieving humans are sent there awaiting judgment day. Uh, That's where unbelievers go when they die and they're waiting for uh, the day when God will, will punish all. That is revealed here in Isaiah and Peter and Jude both reference it. Uh, they will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and confined confined in prison. And after many days, they'll be punished. That's the point. They they're gathered there now, and then later, after many days, will be the day of punishment. Then Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord on Mount Zion, the glory that his elders see that is so bright and shining that the uh, the moon and the stars, the sun, they're they're ashamed in compared to his brightness. And then chapter 25 is now a a survivor, so to speak, uh, the remnant, the the people of God, the 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 Jews who trust God, who obeyed God, and God protected them through uh, the judgment that's befalling Jerusalem. And remember we went back and looked at this in Deuteronomy we see this all through Old Testament and early New Testament. Uh, there was always a, a small portion of the Jews who were faithful to the Lord, even as the vast majority uh, turned against him and were idolaters and so on. There were always a remnant. And here we, we see uh, Isaiah sort of um, 
I, I want to say personifying. He, this is all before the fact for him. He's seeing this. He's experiencing this, but he's describing what it's going to be like for a Jew who is faithful to the Lord through all of the uh, the destruction and judgment that's coming on Jerusalem and the surrounding nations. So that's that's kind of what's going on here in Isaiah 25. He says, "Oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name. Why? For you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. And we talked about this yesterday. Uh, this plan that was formed long ago is the destruction of Jerusalem. Look, for you have made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin. But it's not just Jerusalem here. It broadens out. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. I think I mentioned this along the way. This word in the Hebrew here, cities, is actually singular. So it's a strong people will glorify you and a city of ruthless nations will revere you which is interesting um, that he would use the ruthless nations and describe it as a singular city. Kind of like, I don't want to, I know I'm going to open up a, a can of worms here, but it's like there are two cities here. You've got uh, the city of those, uh, well, it's not right here, but we'll, we'll see this as we develop it. Uh, you've got the city of those who are faithful to the Lord, God's people, surrounded by a city of all the nations that are hostile toward God and his city. And and we, we could draw that out a little bit because of some of the things we know coming later on. But it is just interesting here that what Isaiah uses is singular, a city of ruthless nations uh, will revere you. And maybe it'll help you to see revering God and glorifying God in this context doesn't mean they are believers. If you read uh, if you read the other prophets, we see this, we've already seen this in Isaiah. Um, God continually says, I'm going to display my glory to all these nations, right? When he comes against Egypt and Philistia and Babylon, he, he uses it, he uses language as though they are going to acknowledge him. Doesn't mean they're going to worship him. Even King Cyrus of the Medes and Persians, God says, he's my tool, my instrument, my uh, chosen one. But Cyrus didn't serve him. Nebuchadnezzar, we know this from the book of Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar knew the God of Israel, that he was the, the highest sovereign God, uh, as God humbled him and, and made him wander around like an animal and, and all of this for his pride and arrogance. But there's no real indication that Nebuchadnezzar humbly bowed the knee to him and believed him as the one true God and cast off all his idols and so on. In other words, my reading of Daniel says, I don't expect that we will see Nebuchadnezzar in the next age. I think he perished in his sin, but he did acknowledge that the God of Israel is the highest God. And that this was commonplace uh, 
for that time period where each nation had their god or gods. And if you were defeated by a nation, then you would pay tribute, you would honor uh, the god of the conquering nation because you realized, oh, the reason why they were able to beat us is because their gods were more powerful than ours. But you didn't want to tick off your gods uh, because they were still over you, so you had to continue to worship them, but you take on this worship in honor of the other gods. That was the, the mythology and the, the views back then. So when Isaiah here sees a strong people and a city of ruthless nations revering and glorifying God, it doesn't automatically mean they worshiped him as the one true God and, and had what we would call saving faith, belief in him, honoring him as a, as a believer. It just means these ruthless nations, these strong people, they recognized God is the one, the God of Israel is the one who brought devastation to their own people. He, the God of Israel, is superior to their own gods. Does that make sense? I hope hope you're tracking with that. I think that's what Isaiah is seeing here. Um, and, and he'll come back to this idea of ruthless nations in a moment. Well, why are they revering this God and why are they uh, impressed with the God of Israel? For you have been a defense for the helpless. So to put it back in context here, Here's Isaiah seeing this, this Jew exalting God, giving thanks to his name. He did what he said he would do. He made the city a heap, which I think is Jerusalem. Uh, and all the nations surrounding are honoring God. And you, God, you have been a defense for the helpless. This, I think, are those who were true to God through all the devastation. Uh, they were helpless but God protected them. You were a defense for the needy in his distress. Again, think of being a Jew when Babylon comes and destroys the city. And whether you survived and remained in the city to occupy it briefly, or you were exiled and then came back to the city later, uh, if you were a survivor, when you, when you saw most of your countrymen slaughtered or let off as slaves never to be seen again, if you survived, if you loved the Lord, if you, if you were a true believer and, and served him and survived and then were uh, restored to Jerusalem, uh, this is exactly how you would think of God. You, I was helpless. There's nothing I could do. And, and you defended me. You protected me. I was in distress, and, and you were my rock, my refuge. That's the word he uses here, right? A refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. Right? So there's that idea of ruthless again. These nations that are coming against God's people, it's intense, but you, God, protected us from them. And as they were defeated, and some of us were preserved, that's why they feared that Lord and said, oh, he's a strong one. He, he didn't give all of his people into our hands. Like heat in drought, you subdue the uproar of aliens. Like heat by the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless is silenced. So you see why I think that ruthless nation earlier that uh, revered God is not necessarily believers, but they came against these Jews and the Lord 
protected them and and defeated those nations that were coming against them. I hope, hope you're tracking with me uh, so far. Okay, so now he's going to get into this uh, this banquet. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all his peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow, refined aged wine. This is this is common in the scripture. Y'all know Psalm 23, right? Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and all that. He makes me lay down in green pastures, he restores my soul, all that. Do you remember toward the end, um, before it says, uh, uh, I will live in the presence of the Lord forever. Do you remember that last scene? In fact, let me just let me just pull it up here. We're so familiar with Psalm 23 uh, that we may not stop and look at this. But here's David, in, and he says, You, God, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, think about that setting. So David starts off here, right? I'm, I am walking through the valley of the shadow of death. This psalm is often taught uh, or uh, read at funerals, right? Because it talks about the shadow of death. But David here is not talking about dying. Death would actually be a relief, uh, the valley of the shadow of death is describing such a profound fear, such a profound darkness where you can't even see your hand in front of your face. So imagine walking through a valley and not only being uh, afraid of the the natural enemies, the the uh, the elements. Falling off a cliff, well, I guess if you're in a valley, you're not going to fall off a cliff, but <laughs> right, any, of the, any of the dangers that are there, animals and such, but then your enemies are all throughout this valley, and you are what we would call scared to death, thinking at any, any moment now, uh, something could, ha- could happen, and, and my life could be ended, and, and you can't see where to put your next foot uh, in front of you, and so you're, you're just terrified, and you can't see because it's so dark. That's the imagery. I'm walking through this valley that is, that is so profoundly dark that death would actually be a relief because of the fear. And, and David says here, I, I won't fear evil in that setting because you are with me. Okay? And he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So here I am with enemies all surrounding me. David knew this. He knew what it was like to be hiding in the woods, to be hiding behind a rock where there were people all around, uh, soldiers with spears and, and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of them that wanted to kill him. And David says, here's how secure I am in you. You You're going to prepare a table for me. In the midst of my enemies, the enemies are all around and you've laid out this banquet, this feast of choice food and wine, and I'm going to go sit at that table and eat this delicious food while all my enemies are all right around here. They're surrounding me, but I know they won't touch me because you are protecting me. That's the kind of security 
that David sees in this 23rd Psalm that even it's not that David is removed from the enemies, but he's so secure in the Lord's protection. He says, you've provided this feast and I'm going to go eat because you've got this. You, you, you will protect me. Well, it's the same kind of idea here in Isaiah 25. The enemies, the ruthless that were pressing in on the Jews says, oh, no, we're protected. The Lord's going to prepare this lavish banquet, this, this delicious, um, fat-filled banquet. <laughs> the, the greater the, the amount of fat in their day, they, they didn't worry about cholesterol and such. Uh, that's what this word lavish means, the, the feast of fat things. Uh, an aged wine, the best wine, refined aged. God is going to do this for his people. He's going to provide a meal, a, 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 a banquet that is beyond... Uh, anything you've ever had. And on this mountain, he will swallow up uh, literally the face of the covering, which is over all peoples, even the veil that is stretched over all the nations. So there's some kind of a, a veil, a covering that all peoples uh, have on their face. Well, what is it? Verse 8, he will swallow up death for all time and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth for the Lord has spoken so Isaiah here is is catching this glimpse of the the one who's persevered as the enemies have surrounded but they haven't been able to destroy God's people And now he sees this vision on this mountain where uh, God swallows up death and God comes and wipes away tears. And this idea of reproach uh, was common uh, over and over again with Egypt and others. This reproach, this this scorn of his people because of their enslavement, because of their weakness and defeatedness and all this. And God swallows all that up and removes it all. And, and now they are feasting and, and banqueting in the midst of the enemies. So I, I told you I'm going to resist the urge to just go to the New Testament constantly and see how the New Testament uses all these passages. I can't help but at least mention this one. Paul grabs this setting in 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks about uh, the the perishable taking on the imperishable. We must put off this mortal body and and put on an immortal body when we're changed in the twinkling of an eye and all that. And he quotes this passage. And he says, the last enemy to be conquered is death. So I can, I'm sure Martin's already typing. Uh, think that through. If the last enemy to be conquered is death, that means all of the other enemies have already been conquered before death is conquered, right? You see what I'm saying? So we know there are enemies of the Lord Jesus and of his people. And we are called to be faithful to him. And remember Paul, even in the first century, said we are, we are taking captive uh, everything that builds itself up, that lifts itself up and exalts itself against the truth of, of God and, and the Lord Jesus. 
and he says we don't battle with our with weapons, man-made weapons. He calls it uh, flesh, the weapons of the flesh. Uh, but we we use God's weapons, divine weapons, which is the truth of of His Word and the Holy Spirit. And he he says we are conquering and more than conquerors of all over all these enemies, leading to the final enemy being destroyed, which is death. Well, Paul gets some of that here in Isaiah twenty five. Death is swallowed up. The reproach of all the people are removed. And then he goes on and says, We said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. Save us from whom? Well, from our enemies. This is the Lord from whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Again, he has, salva- he has saved us. He's provided salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. Keeps coming back to, coming back to Mount Zion. And, uh, and this place where the Lord is reigning from, Jerusalem. And Moab will be trodden down in his place. Kind of out of nowhere, uh, he goes back to Moab. Moab will be trodden down as straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pile. And he will spread out his hands in the middle of it as the swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. So Moab is going to uh, take take pains to save himself like a swimmer swims spreads out his hands i got this i you know i'm going to swim and save myself he's going to spread out his hands but the lord will lay low his pride together with the trickery of his hands moab is not going to escape god will defeat him the unassailable fortifications of your walls he will bring down and lay low and cast to the ground even to the dust Moab, do you know anything about Moab? We've already seen an oracle against Moab in Isaiah. We saw that earlier. Uh, Moab was the firstborn son of Lot. If you remember the story when Lot's daughters get him drunk and uh, lay with him, they want to have a they want to have babies, and they're they're afraid that they're not going to ever find a man to get pregnant. So they uh, basically get their dad drunk and and seduce him, and they both get pregnant by him. Well, the first, the oldest daughter, her son is Moab, and they become the Moabites. And there's a lot of hostility between the Moabites and the Jews over the years. And the pride of Moab is apparently quite renowned. Uh, All of Jeremiah 48, or at least most of it, is God describing the coming judgment on Moab. And he spends a lot of time in Jeremiah describing uh, how he is going to uh, humiliate and destroy this prideful Moabite nation. Uh, do you remember who the great, or at least maybe the most prominent king of Moab was? It was Balak. And you remember that whole story where Balak hires Balaam to prophesy against the Jews? And he, he can't do it. God won't let Balaam pronounce a curse on his people. And he keeps cursing the Moabites. And Balak is just furious. I paid you. I called you to, to prophesy against the Jews. And all you do is prophesy against us. And there's one in particular uh, section here in Numbers 24 uh, where uh, it says here, he took up the discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, 
and the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God. So this is Balaam, who isn't a God-fearer in a believing sense, but he's a prophet, and he's he's the one hired by Balak. And he says, uh, this is the one who knows the word of, or hears the words of God, who knows uh, the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down, yet having his eyes covered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush the forehead of Moab. So Balaam is saying, it's not going to happen yet, but eventually a scepter is going to rise from Israel and crush through the forehead of Moab. Interesting. Someday this king is going to rise and crush Moab. And we have here in Isaiah, uh, in the midst of the enemies of God's people being defeated, God destroying the pride of Moab. So, interesting stuff here. Again, we know what this points forward to in some ways, but I'm trying to help us see a little bit of what a Jew would have been thinking as they read this. And then, of course, we must always let the New Testament uh, give us the fuller, fullest uh, purpose here, meaning Peter says, can't help but think that the covering over all nation is the fear of death, which is now taken away because of the promise of eternal life. Yeah, that's that's a good thought. Uh, the writer of Hebrews talks about that, right? That the, the that Satan is the one who manifests the fear of death. Uh, and because the reason you'd be afraid of dying is judgment, right? And knowing that uh, after death comes judgment. And if, if we are no longer afraid of dying because, uh, because we know that we are forgiven people and we will live eternally, then uh, then that fear is removed. So yeah, that's a that's a good good point. And again, we can't help it, and we should. We must let the New Testament inform all of this. Um, and, and absolutely, I'm committed to the New Testament having priority of interpretation over the Old Testament. Um, and I'm tempted. In fact, I, I this morning I was really praying through this and pondering and thinking, should we go to First Corinthians 15 and walk through all of that? Because that is the the fullest expression and understanding of all of this, but I decided not to because I, I kind of wanted just to stay in Isaiah here, and and uh, we have to understand Isaiah before we see how the New Testament uses it. It, it helps us not go places we shouldn't go. For example, and I'll I'm going to close with this. I'm going to leave this here. In uh, uh, let me let me just pull, <laughs> pull it up. I oh man, I'm so bad at. Uh, I, I can't help but not do this. But so this is this is fascinating. Um, I, I should know better. We don't we don't have time to get into all this. But let me just read it and tell you because there are some questions that still linger in my mind as I read First Corinthians and how Paul uses this text. So let me just see if I can introduce the question to you and make you wrestle with it too. So he says, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's interesting because when Jesus shows up in his resurrected body, he says, here, put your hands 
put, put your fingers in my hands. I am flesh and blood. So that's fascinating. But he says, Paul says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Remember, a mystery is something that was hidden that's now been revealed. He's revealing something here that was hidden formerly. We will not all sleep, meaning we won't all die, but we will all be changed. All be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in the last trumpet or at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Why? For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. So you see what's happening. There's going to be the last trumpet. The dead are going to rise up, and they're not going to be raised in their perishable bodies that went into the ground. They're going to be given imperishable imperishable bodies, bodies that can't die. That's what immortal means. But when this perishable shall have put on the imperishable, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. All right, that's Isaiah 25. We just read it. Except he adds this word in victory, which is fine. Uh, the, Isaiah is not there, but you know this, this may not be, he may not be quoting. He may just be quoting the death is swallowed up. Then he adds victory. But then he quotes from Hosea. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So we see what he means by where he gets this concept of victory. It's from Hosea. That's interesting because in the original context of Hosea, it means something quite different from what it sounds like it means here. In this context, it sounds like he's saying death is is defeated Death has no sting, and it sounds like it means the same thing as Isaiah 25, right? Death is swallowed up. Death has no victory. Death has no sting. But in Hosea, this passage is God saying, Oh, death, come here. Where is your victory? I need your victory. Death, come here. I need your sting. I'm going to punish my people Israel for their wickedness and idolatry. You see that? So the original Hosea, if you go back and read this in Hosea, God is angry and furious with Israel. It's the same kind of thing as we've seen in Isaiah. He is furious with Israel's wickedness and idolatry, and he says, I'm going to wipe you out. It's, it's predicting the same kind of thing that we see in Isaiah, the, the destruction of Jerusalem. And God summons death as his instrument. Come, bring your victory against my people. Bring your sting and destroy my people. So it's not a message of hope and compassion at all. In fact, he says in that context, I don't have any compassion for my people. And here Paul says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. interesting in this context. So I know, I just introduced something and I'm not going to walk it through with you. (laughs) I'm going to leave that to yourself because we are studying Isaiah here. But this is fascinating and this is why I think we have to continue to come back to the Old Testament and see what these phrases and passages meant in the original context 
and then try to figure out why does Paul and Peter and whoever else, why do they, they use these texts? How are they understanding these Old Testament texts in light of the full revelation of Christ? And, and what does it mean now? And we must keep doing that, but I'm not going to spend the time quite yet to do that with you from the New Testament. I really do want to stick around to the Old Testament. So let me see the last thing Peter said here, and then we'll call it a day. Could flesh and blood relate to the natural birth as opposed to being born from above through spiritual rebirth? Uh, Flesh and blood, the natural birth, uh, yes, I think it can, but, hmm, but would that change? Jesus was in a body that he says had flesh and blood, even in his resurrected body. So yeah, interesting, could be. Um, Those are some of the questions. It's hard to sort out. You know, last things, whether we're talking about uh, last things, eschatology for human history and the timing of the millennium and all that, and our own, you know, personal eschatology. This is tough stuff. That's why we have to be humble and just keep studying and reading the scripture. All right, folks, we're going to call it a day. Have a great one. And uh, we'll be back at it tomorrow. God bless.